Welcome to Wisco Dice. I am your host, the Conzi with the most, and I am joined with all of these wonderful other hosts on the show. Hey, it's Brian, sometimes Stark Raving Mad. Hey, it's Justin, the Meeple's Champion. And I'm Matt, the Ghost Walker. And this is Suzanne. And this is episode 104 of the Wisco Dice Tabletop Gaming Podcast! Woohoo! Today is January 25th, 2023, and on today's episode, we'll have interviews with JT from the Game Crafters and Keith from Thunderworks Games. We'll have our hobby corner where we catch up on any miniature painting and hobby projects we've been working on. We're going to hit the news quick and hard, and first, let's roll into the games that we have been playing! And we'll go ahead and kick off this games we've been playing with a game called Castles of the Mad King Ludwig, the Royal Collector's Edition, which is a game that we just received from a GameFound project. Um, well, actually, I didn't say just as received. We've had it for most of the summer, but we finally got it off the bar of shame and actually got it to the table. Uh, Castle of the Mid- Mad Queen, Mad King Ludwig is a classic game. So this is a reprint and and slight upgrade in the art and and look of the game itself. It included a bunch of the expansions that had been previously printed in the game. Gameplay time is around 90 minutes, the, and it's published by Bezier Games. Plays 1 to 4, but actually with the expansion content in the Royal Collector's Edition box, you can get a fifth player in, which is really nice. In the game itself, each player starts with a simple foyer to their castle, and then during the each game round, everybody's going to be doing stuff, but one player will take on the role of Master Builder, and that player... Uh, takes all of the rooms and that are available for purchase and adding to your to your castle, and will set the price. So there's a price of maybe two thousand or three thousand or four thousand, and so on and so forth for each of these these buildings. And then each other player outside of the master builder will have an opportunity to purchase one of those rooms. If they do so, they give the master builder the money for the purchase. And then at the end, the master builder gets to purchase a room. Of course, they could pass and collect money from the bank or whatnot. But the idea is that you're you're going to purchase these room tiles. They're various different shapes and sizes. And then you're going to add it to your castle. And when you do that, you gain castle points, which is the way you're going to win the game, is collecting these castle points. There's a little scoring track that goes around the game board provided in the collector's edition. And... When the card deck that tells you which buildings to add runs out, the game is end. The game comes to an end, and you determine who won by who had the most points. Of course, there's a lot of other little things that are going on in uh, Castles of Mad Queen King Ludwig, but at its core, it's an amazing tile laying game. That is a classic game. I've always had fun with it with the original printing. I think this version of it makes the game look just that much better on the on the table. It's got some really cool tower structures that you can then add to your castle, which I could take or leave those because I think it takes a little maybe a little bit away from the tile laying, but the rest of the game was a lot of fun and enjoyable. I think Justin, you played the original version if I if I'm not mistaken and 
And yeah. correct me if I'm wrong there. And then Suzanne, you got to actually experience this for the first time with the collector's edition with me. What did you guys think about this game? I, I like this game. Uh, I, I, the auction thing I think is really fun. And then for me, it's just like, I enjoy tiling games and I enjoy that you're just building this crazy castle. It, it just looks ridiculous by the end of the thing. You know, I was, I was trying to listen and see if there's anything they really updated or changed in terms of, you know, balancing or gameplay or anything. It sounds like it's they just sort of included expansions and, you know, improved some art and stuff. No, no real big changes. I assume you played the original. I played the original. Uh, it'd been so long since I had played the original that I really didn't notice anything from a, a gameplay balance mix. And I didn't play the original enough. I never owned a copy of it until mm-hmm. now. So I didn't have anything to really hard comparison compare it against the original game. But yeah, I would suspect they. I believe they did some things to kind of change up some game balance things and to make uh, make it a little bit uh, different with some of the the rooms. They've added some new rooms to the game as well. So there's that as well. Gotcha. So there's a lot of there's a lot of variants now. I think in just in the collector's edition box, there's there's. It, there's quite a bit to it, and there's a lot of expansion content. Like we didn't play with the moats expansion, so there's a an expansion that lets you actually build a moat around your castle as you're building your castle too, so that you can kind of you know if you're really successful, you can, can build a full square moat around your castle, and that that could be kind of neat and cool. And there's a lot of other there's just a lot of things that you can just kind of explore with this one that maybe weren't in the base game itself or the old original. Oh yeah, that sounds awesome. I got to try this one. And it's prettier. Like I will say, yeah. hands down, yeah. this version is prettier. That that yeah. that is one issue with the first one. It it doesn't like it's it's serviceable, but it's a, it's not. You know, I mean, that's an older game. It doesn't have the look. At the time, it was great, right? I, mean, I think it was. Yeah. A, it looked pretty good, but yeah, I, I think it did not stand the test of time from a visual perspective but this this visual facelift of this classic game is definitely well needed and it makes the table game just have an amazing table presence now i think that speaks to though what the current era of gaming is really transformed i mean i mean i've seen some very simple games and simple art that work really well but so many of them have just really upped their game and they're just beautiful games with beautiful art so you know, it's nice to see that evolution that they're taking some of the old classics and updating them with that improved art. Yeah, I, I think it's a generally a good trend. Like, I definitely appreciate good art in a game, and glad they glad that others do too. <laughs> so, where Boon Lake was long, this game is short. Like, it feels very short. To, even though we have this nice collector's edition that has. Com- components in it to aid with setup it still takes a bit of time to set it up about as much time as it feels to play a game so i feel like this is a game that if you take the time to set it up you need to play it more than once it's still fun i definitely want to play it with more than two players and i want to add some of the expansions in i just want to see what they are going to add to it it is a pretty game like everyone said it's it's a very quick game, and I got frustrated because there are things I wanted to do, but there's no time to do them. So there's very little planning I felt I could do with the game. 
this is a tricky game for two players too. I mean, the way that the maybe they changed how the auctioning works, but I remember that being a little bit clunky for two players. Is that your experience? Oh, you pretty much know what the other person's going to want after yeah. a round or two, and you set it, or you know how much money they have. And so, you know, if you have more money, you can just easily set it higher and there's me no worry about it or yeah. set stuff that you don't want them to have out of their price range. Super easy because there's only one other player to be, you know, checking out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think there was some of that, but then at the same time, there was, oh, well, I'm glad you put that into a price point that only you could afford. I'll just take take money from the bank this round and not buy anything, and now you're stuck paying that more expensive price. Thank you, Master <laughs> Builder, for putting that out of my price point. You get no money now. You know, kind of that was that was happening. So I think there's some tactical play at two players, but yes, I think it. I think this is a game that still shines better at three or four players, or even the uh, adding in the fifth player option. Yeah, we had several rounds where neither of us could afford. We had no money, so neither of us could afford to buy anything. So it was like, all right, well, that's just a round of getting money. So that I'm well, guessing in a three or four player game, it, there's more likely someone is going to have the two thousand dollars to buy a building, uh-huh. and there are cheaper buildings the more players you have. I will add that I think this version of it, while it is pretty and I really like the a lot of the things that they've done with this game to enhance the table presence, I do feel like there are are a number of things in the game that they've it wasn't really necessary to add to what was a was previously a pretty quick and easy pile laying game to set up and play and and then you know re-rack it and set it up and play again. So there there is a bit of that. I do I do feel like maybe they felt like they just had to like it's a bigger box in a for a game that you're like, ooh, I'm gonna get this big game experience and then you play it and you're done. We were you know you suck for two for a two player game, you're done in forty five minutes. I think that was maybe a little bit of what you're kind of talking about, Suzanne, in the, oh, hey, it felt almost like a letdown for the amount of setup and and whatnot that you're doing. And then all of a sudden you're, oh, hey, we're done with the game. What what do you mean I'm done? I need to do these three, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I, I feel like I have more to do or more to, more to, more to keep going on the game, but the game's over and you're like, uh... I'm just getting going with it, you know. It's only been a half an hour at the table or whatever, right? I guess that's the trade-off with the deluxified version. Like, you know, <laughs> it looks looks like a bigger game than it is. Yeah. I still love Castles of Mad King Ludwig. It definitely does that perfectly, and it has a lot. It has all of the extra parts and pieces built into the box, so. Plus some new expansion content. Don't ask me what that new expansion content is because I don't, I wasn't familiar with the expansions that were released previously for the game. If you're a big fan of tile layers and the original version of Castle of Mad King Ludwig, by all means, go out and get this. But otherwise, I think you can find Castle of the Mad King Ludwig, the original, out there 
if you're interested in a nice tile layer, uh, you can probably get a used copy of that for a very a much more reasonable price. I definitely recommend in either version you try out Castles of Bad King Ludwig. All right. For the next game that we've been playing, several of us have had a chance, and it is an oldie but a goodie at this point, uh, which is Gloomhaven. Uh, I know many of you are probably eagerly waiting for your shipment of Frosthaven, but now is a great time to really wrap up your Gloomhaven campaign that you've been nursing for a while. So Gloomhaven is published by Cellafair Games. Uh, Playtime is somewhere between 60 to 120 minutes per scenario, and you really can support one to four players. So... On our side, the people that have really played this uh, quite a bit, at least recently, is uh, Ben, Suzanne, and myself. Though not together. (laughs) Gloomhaven is a very tactical game. It is one of those games that has a very big intimidating box. And it is infamous for needing a lot of organizers just to make it so that you can put the game out in a reasonable time frame. So the basis of the game is really you are mercenaries in the town of Gloomhaven, and you're here to follow this epic story of what happens in Gloomhaven and decide as the story progresses with a little bit of a pick-your-own-adventure style game where every scenario you do, some of them are main story, but you get to also follow side quests and develop your characters by way of picking new cards and and adding new features to your character as you grow them. So the game basically plays out with strategic scenarios, which have basically really well-written backgrounds as to what's going on in the game and how, how what's going on in that particular scenario and a layout which adapts itself for the number of players you have. So, uh, you know, even if you're a one player, you always play at least two characters. So it's balanced between two and four characters, basically, in the game. And it gives you the opportunity to go through the scenario and you start each scenario with a deck of cards. And the deck of cards and how many you have is really dependent upon your character. And each character has basically cards that specify what they do. And each card is divided into a top and a bottom. And you select one top and one bottom to play, and you pick the order. Um, And then the monsters are driven by their own monster decks that automatically occur. So uh, there's a set of rules that occur with the monsters. But the idea is you go through the scenario, and you try to achieve the objectives in the scenario with your characters. And there may be other special things that occur during the scenarios. There may be loot chests that you could try to find if you can, or extra little things that you can do. And in between, either when you're traveling to get to a dungeon or you're sitting around town, there are other special events that occur where you're basically... uh, interacting with the world around you, and you may do things that will help the city or hurt the city. And, uh, you know, it really gives you that opportunity of whether you want to play the good guys or the bad guys. And sometimes there are, frankly, no good decisions to be had when you're picking a solution. So, um, you know, this is, like I said, this can be a very large, intimidating game for many people. It's not really designed to be played in one setting, though it is um, if you can get a group of people together for, say, several days to play this, uh, you can make a lot of progress. 
but it's definitely more of that style of game. You're going to want to build a campaign where you're going to need a, a dedicated group of people that can come semi-regularly and sit down and do it. Or, like I said, because it can support two people, if you and your your spouse or or your significant other love playing games together that are cooperative and it's you against the board, this is another game that you could definitely do something like that. And you can do a lot of interactions where you support each other, um, but you don't necessarily know what the other person's going to play. You know, it's definitely one of those things you have to have a good bit of time and space to set up. It is a time-consuming game to set up. Uh, it has a lot of components to it. But it also, and, and, and I'm going to say this because um, it's one of the ways I've played this extensively, is there is an actually really good version of this game, a digital version of this game as well. So if you struggle or you have, you'd love to do this with a, a friend of yours who lives in another state, but you just can't, you know, get together regularly, there is a digital version available on both Steam and the Epic Game Store that... Uh, it works really well with multiple players. Um, I played a campaign all the way through on that digital version of this and Jaws of the Lion, which is one of the expansions. There's multiple expansions for this game. It's, it's definitely a, a very strategic game where you don't always make the right decisions. And it has a great flavor for how you develop the town and how you kind of build things out. So, Ben, Suzanne, what did I miss? There's so much to this game. I'm not sure that you missed anything too dramatic. I mean, it's Gloomhaven, and if you haven't heard of Gloomhaven at this point, and you're in the board game world, you're probably living under a rock. That said, I, I think there's a lot of people out there that haven't tried or haven't decided to get into Gloomhaven because the box is so massive. Jaws of the Lion, one of the expansions for Gloomhaven, really does make it much more viable for someone to check it out and get it in a more of a smaller form factor that's a little more straightforward and teaches you the how to play the game and boy i kind of wish jaws of the lion was out before i bought <laughs> gloomhaven because <laughs> it would have been nice to kind of walk through a little bit better this is how you play the game and you grow your characters and and also maybe i decide not to get gloomhaven after all uh, I love Gloomhaven. It's a great game, but there is a lot of content in this game. There are a hundred scenarios in the base box. So that's a lot of gameplays. And you, if you don't succeed at a scenario, back up and try again. Yep, you just re-rack it and go again. And in your playing in campaign mode, that means that yeah, there's a hundred scenarios you're probably going to end up with 120, 140, 150, maybe even 200 plays of Gloomhaven. That is a lot of hours and a lot of commitment for any game group. And that's why when I said, oh, I might have actually backed out and just did Jaws of the Lion and said, hey, that was good. I understand the Gloomhaven experience because it's a, it's a smaller thing that's much more manageable and be able to be chew chewed off that said suzanne and i are massively trying to bang out as much gloomhaven as we can before a copy of frosthaven shows up because that will be another hundred plus scenarios that we need to try to work through if you're looking at gloomhaven yes the i think the online version is probably the app version of it that came out later 
is probably the easiest way to maintain and do this with a group. If you have uh, an amazing board game group or, in, or a couple individuals that are absolutely insanely committed to playing the same game over and over and over, a lot of times in a reasonably short amount of time, you could bang out a Gloomhaven campaign and not too bad. Of course, if you also choose to try to drive more towards the main story arc and not explore every little bit and morsel that Gloomhaven has to to give you, you can probably get through it in a, a much more reasonable campaign time too. But I think, yeah. Suzanne, we're exploring every nook and cranny of that game, aren't we? Pretty much, and some of it's because we go fail a scenario, replay the scenario, and just don't want to be slaughtered a third time, so we back up and go a different way. And I think that's one of the things you have to be okay with before you start this campaign, is that you may not be able to pass every scenario, and you may have some devastating defeats no matter what you do, and how good your characters are. And there's one thing I don't think uh, Ben or Matt mentioned was that you start off with your character, you build them up, you level them up, and then you get to a point where you get to retire them and start a new character. Now, that new character does not start down at level one. It starts at, you know, kind of a midway point between where your old one was and, you know, zero and based on where you guys are in the game and everything. And that is keeping me very much engaged in the game is that I've retired a character. I'm getting close to retiring another one. So it's changing it up by getting to play a different character with a different play style Mm -hmm. and see how that goes. So that's, I mean, I love, I really do enjoy Gloomhaven. I really love the aspect of being able to change my characters uh, throughout the game too. I think that's a very important mechanic too, Suzanne. I don't I didn't want to give people the impression you have one character through the whole thing. The the retirement is fascinating. It gives you it keeps the game fresh. You know, and if you're not enjoying a character, it gives you an opportunity to build towards something to get you something else you might enjoy better. So Yeah, I want to pipe in just real quick and second the idea of checking out Jaws of the Lion. So I've played Jaws of the Lion and a tiny bit of Gloomhaven, but for me, like, it is way too much of a commitment to do the full Gloomhaven thing. A couple people you had said that Jaws of the Lion is an expansion. It is a fully complete game on its own. It uses the Gloomhaven mechanics, and like they said, it teaches you the game, but it is its own full game experience. It's not an expansion. You don't have to have Gloomhaven to play Jaws of the Lion. It's its own game, and it's actually at a much more reasonable price point if that's something mm-hmm. that is an issue for you for gloomhaven and uh so i think if you know it's it's perfect for someone who might be intimidated by the price or size or commitment of gloomhaven uh who's looking for that experience it is a complete game and i i would definitely recommend it you know as you guys did too <laughs> i did mention as an expansion you can carry your jaws of the lion campaign characters and party into the Gloomhaven campaign. Ah, gotcha. Okay. It's it's sort of a pre precursor. It technically occurs before Gloomhaven, but I will say my first tabletop experience with Gloomhaven was Jaws of the Lion. 
a friend of mine from Texas had us down for a week. And, and yes, I know most people can't dedicate a full week, but I think it took us uh, playing it all day, about four or five days to work through the whole campaign. And we were not getting up at like eight and playing till midnight. Uh, you know, we're all older. Sorry, we just don't move that quick. Uh, but it was a really good time. Um, and it was definitely, like you guys said, it was much more of a better introduction for me who'd never been in the Gloomhaven universe. You know, because I was always the same way. I was like, I had young kids earlier in my life, and I always stared at Gloomy and just went, it's just so expensive. You know, it's always on sale anymore. <laughs> but uh, Jaws of the Lion is a great, like you said, standalone introduction to Gloomhaven that you could really make a decision on that universe without having to be like, I spent $150 on the base game and I got $80 in organizers and all sorts of other stuff. So. Yeah, definitely a game that you can get hours and hours and hours worth of entertainment out of that doesn't require, I mean, but it does take a lot of dedication uh, from a group. Even Jaws of the Lion, you, you know, you, you've got to expect you're going to be playing for probably a solid, you know, 40 hours worth of gameplay, probably. Yeah, there's still a ton of game in that, honestly. Oh, yeah, it's it's not a small one, and it definitely has its own branching campaign, so... There's a lot of great content in there as well. Yeah, yeah, we're probably twenty or thirty percent of the way through the content, so it's we got a lot of gameplay to go there. So it'll be interesting to see just how close or how far we can get through it before we actually are able to say, "Hey, we actually feel like we're done and we're ready to move on to Frosthaven." All right, so. If you are interested in any of these games, you think they're cool, I mean, obviously Gloomhaven's the big one that it's the first time I think we really talked about on this show, make sure you head over to wiscodice.com and check out the links for any of these games, as well as pictures and other thoughts in our show notes for this episode. Next up, let's go ahead and roll right into the gaming news. All right, so first up with the gaming news this month is the hottest news around is that Wisco Dice has launched our YouTube channel. So our first video launch for a monthly series is up and we're reviewing three games in 15 minutes for you. We'll be releasing videos weekly via this channel. So please head on over, check out the Wisco Dice YouTube and don't forget to like and subscribe. Heads up to all our uh, fellow Madisonians. The next Wisco Dice board game night at Misty Mountain Games will be on February 24th. Games start at 6 p.m. and we welcome all comers. Play a game from the Wisco Dice Tabletop Gaming Library or bring your own. Uh, we'd love to see you there. Also worth noting, the Gen Con badges are now up for sale. Uh, expect to see members of the Wisco Dice Tabletop Gaming Podcast at the show. Of course, we'd love to meet some of you, and we'll have swag to give out. Feel free to catch us at the show and say hello. And similar to that, uh, the next big convention uh, Whisker Dice will be at will be Adepticon. I know myself and Konzi are planning to be there. I think Ben, you already signed up for Batman on Thursday and Friday. I'll probably at least do Batman on Friday. Then... I guess Saturday is looking pretty open for us right now. If you're interested in catching a game, 
while we're at the show, please reach out and we'll see if we can make it happen. We've also got some crowdfunding news to share. Uh, just uh, one Kickstarter that caught my eye recently is Manhattan Project War Machine. This is a game in a line of uh, other Manhattan Project games, starting with Manhattan Project and then Manhattan Project Energy Empire, uh, both of which are games I've played and enjoyed. So this is the newest in that line. Uh, the Kickstarter is $35. It's already been funded, so good signs there. A little bit different than the previous games. There's a very sort of stylistic propaganda poster art style. And I mentioned that just because it differs so much from the previous games. It might be somewhat of a, a change for, you know, people who are used to the art style of the other two games. Gameplay-wise, it's a, it's a dike wor dice worker placement game with engine building. And I think just because of the pedigree of its uh, other games in the series, it's worth keeping an eye on. Manhattan Project War Machine. And next up with the Kickstarter projects that caught our eyes is Puzzle Cube Dice by Phone Brain Games. And the I love Phone Brain Dice to look at. I think it's really cool how they have different inclusions in a lot of their dice. But this is something different. These are dice and other gaming accessories for you with a puzzle theme. So if you love puzzles and love games. This is a great marriage of the two of them. And one other Kickstarter I'd like to highlight is Fork, F-O-R-K, which stands for Fox, Owl, Rabbit, Kale. Uh, this is a Kickstarter that we will be launching on the 30th of January, and we received a review copy of this, actually. Uh, so keep an eye out for our review of this game in the next few days or so. Fork is a family-friendly trick-taking game. It's a a quick to learn, easy to play, and has unexpected depth to it, honestly. Keep an eye out for that review, and back fork if it sounds like it's something for you. All right, and that gets us through the news. If you have anything that you think we missed, please let us know at hosts at whiskerdice.com. You can just email that in, and we'll make sure that we include it or mention it in the news the next time we have an episode. But with that, let's go ahead and roll right into our Hobby Corner. All right. So Hobby Corner for me this month is more work on my Malifaux models. Those of you that have been listening for a few months know that I am slowly getting into the world of Malifaux and learning to put together and paint models. So I'm up now to basing them. Big step for me, I have uh, come up with a base design with the help of Konzi and gotten that started. And hopefully next month I'll have some previews on the uh, painting that I've started on. But question for everyone out there or for those other hosts on this show right now, with your basing, how do you approach basing for your crews? Do you keep everything like the same theme for every model or do you just kind of change it up based on how you're feeling when you look at the model oh i will go ahead and jump in real quick and then brian i'd be fascinated to hear your thoughts because i i think they've evolved a little bit from our old warhammer days where you were very focused on having a, a unified cohesive look for every model with the way it was based and oftentimes even painted so that it was looked like it was all parts and members of a greater army 
but in these days there's a little more flex, particularly with games like Malifaux, where you may end up with models that you don't really maybe want to buy the same model twice and build and paint the same model twice, but that model might service in, say, a Resurrection in a crew, and then be able to service in a Neverborn crew, and maybe you had basic schemes that were different for both crews, so how do you try to approach that? And I think the biggest thing that I would say to advise is try to kind of merge where those models come come together. So maybe if you had like the Halloween creepy garden, which I do for my Neverborn actually in Malifaux, and then I have kind of a graveyard basing scheme for my my Resurrectionists, I try to, if I have models that cross, try to find a way to include those two basing schemas. So maybe have a graveyard with a pumpkin on the base and then the miniature mounted to it or something like that. That way the whole crew has this kind of cool, cohesive story with the way they're modeled and presented from an appearance perspective and all look like they fit together. But Brian, I'd love to hear your thoughts because this is something that you're probably starting to experience as well, having models across different uh, crews. Yeah, I think I've actually kind of avoided or haven't made a decision myself on how to do that. I still definitely think about like the cohesion of a crew. Like Batman has a lot of opportunities for those same kind of you know models that can work in a few different crews. Most of my crews, like I'll do them all the same, but I haven't really done one yet that I expect to play in more than one crew. But I know I've kind of locked some of my models into like matching my certain crew. Like I did my league pretty unique with kind of like a more of a desert themed base. And since I was playing Deadshot in with that crew, like I ended up making him with that base. And now he's kind of locked into that. So like if I want to include that Deadshot with any other crews, like he's going to be really out of place. Or I'm going to have to like kind of change up and get a different model for him or something like that. Generally, I always try to make everything cohesive, but with cross models, it kind of becomes an issue. Then, depending on what you're doing for basing. There. Yeah, it actually ties into my hobby um, projects lately. Um, kind of, I think I mentioned it on um, whatever our last time corner might have been, but I had acquired a Watchmen crew of the old metal models to play. And one of my hangups on them is I'm not exactly sure how I want to base them, so I actually haven't really whatever, clean them up or put them on bases yet because I was trying to figure that out. But they're kind of waiting in the rings. I did finally get some Hobby Mojo back at the beginning of this new year now. Recently, we've been playing the kind of the league play at whatever weekly for the last few weeks for Batman. And to get more points for that, I was trying to keep back to playing all painted crews, so kind of short on some models I wanted to use in my fan crew, so I'd switch back to League for a bit, but I finally had some motivation to then paint up. I finished the Militia model for the Soldiers of Fortune, uh, so she made it out to game night this week, and then I kind of kept my mojo going, and now I'm working on the actual, kind of the regular Bane. I had the Dark Knight Rises Bane, is what I've been playing, so now I'm trying to finish the Bane from like the overdrive box, kind of your regular comic book Bane to do next. So that's what I've been doing for hobby projects lately. I've taken on a fairly big project for myself. 
Uh, and that is that I'm starting to paint the exosuit miniatures for a board game called Anachrony. Anachrony is a worker placement time traveling game. And one of the aspects of the game is that some of the actions you take, you have to put your worker inside a giant mech suit to send them out into the wasteland to take advantage of things that are out there in the dangerous wasteland. They have to go out in these big mech suits. So there's a set of miniatures you can buy that you can include in the game just you know for fun, basically. And actually, also, I should mention, it's published by Mind Clash Games. But in the game, there are four different factions that you can play, and each of them have six chunky exosuit miniatures. So I've started on all those. I've actually gotten nearly complete, maybe 80-90% on two of the factions. Um, one of them is called the Path of Salvation faction, and they have these sort of this big chunky suit with one arm that's a big old drill, and the other is like this big sort of robot-looking grasper claw. And then the other one is actually a miniature I mentioned way back on one of the first episodes that I was in, which is uh, the Path of Dominance. They have this sort of octopus-like exosuit with a smooth sort of squid head and these four big old tentacle arms coming out of it, sort of like, uh, you know, like a Doc Ock style tentacle arm, you know? Yeah, so I'm maybe 90% done with both of the sets of those six, and then I've got two more to do to finish the game, and I've sort of set the goal for myself that I'm going to have these finished in time for Cabin Con. So I think setting that deadline has helped me stay motivated to, to keep working on them. Definitely a big big project for me because this is like the most minis I've ever painted at one time. So it's a new a new thing to me. <laughs> I will say that one of the best things for motivation that you could possibly have in the world of miniature painting is a deadline. <laughs> There's nothing like a tournament or an event to really push yourself to getting things done. Isn't that right, Brian? Yep, that's how you get stuff done. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just participate in more events and, it'll, and force yourself to take new models to those events and you'll get stuff done. My hobby project has been more 3D printing. So uh, even though my Ender 3 has been a little bit fussy lately uh, with getting plastic to feed through it, I have been able to conquer most of the mechanical challenges and i've been printing off a bunch of stls that i purchased from corvus games terrain that are from their modern terrain collection these pieces will be great for the batman miniature game they'll be great for crisis protocol basically anything that i need to set up city streets for uh, overall i think the prints have turned out really nice i think they look really cool um I will uh, note, and I didn't realize this when I purchased the STLs, is that the buildings are all kind of undersized. Like, their scale, like the doors and windows are to scale, but the buildings themselves are very small. And in contrast to, like, say, what they would should be uh, in real life. Like, uh, for example, I've got, like, one building that's like, a comic shop that I printed and it's maybe a six inch by six inch building. And if I put like, say the Hulk miniature from crisis protocol next to it, he looks almost as big as the building just from a sheer volume size. So it, it, it doesn't look quite visually proportionate 
in my mind when I look at these buildings, but from a fun game function, I think this is not, the design is really for game functionality, which I think the, the small little undersized buildings are probably really uh, much better for game functionality. And of course, having them a little undersized makes them easier to make sure that anybody who has a 3D printer can fit them on the print bed for any of their uh, FDM printers that are out there. With that, we'll uh, go ahead and make sure that we get pictures of all of these projects up on our website at whiskodice.com so that you can check them out and see all of this hobby goodness that we've been looking, working on. But from here, we're going to go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk to JT from the Game Crafters uh, and then talk to Keith from Thunderworks. Hey folks, this is the Conzie of the Most. I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about Misty Mountain Games here in Madison, Wisconsin, where you can find CCGs, RPGs, board games, minis, paint and hobby supplies for your all of your tabletop gaming experience and needs. If you can't find it online, give them a phone call or swing on by their brick and mortar store uh, here on the east side of Madison. Don't worry, that is MistyMountainGames.com. Check them out today. All right, and we are back from break, and we are now joined by JT from the Game Crafter. Welcome, JT. Hello, it's good to be here. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about what the Game Crafter is? Sure. My name's JT, uh, JT Smith, if you want the full name. The Game Craft, and I'm one of the owners of the Game Crafter. The Game Crafter is a print-on-demand service where you can design your own game and uh, get real printed copies. You can basically uh, design your artwork, upload it to our website. We've got templates to help you format everything. And then you can choose out little pieces that you might want in, dice or pawns, that sort of thing. We can make everything from cards to boxes, boards, booklets, uh, mats. I mean dials, uh, anything. Basically, you upload that stuff to our website. A little over a week later, you'll get a copy in the mail. And uh, if you like it, you can also sell it in our web- on our website. We handle a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Uh, and we aren't going to even cover uh, a tiny fraction of them tonight when we <laughs> as we talk. <laughs> well, that sounds wonderful. I mean, if no one has ventured out to the game crafter website i will definitely put a link in our show notes for them uh but it is just amazing what different options you have for game designers alone for what different types of pieces they want and the sizes they want and then you said they can (laughs) they can sell it too so how does that work well, basically, we have an online shop, uh, you know, like Amazon or whatever. Uh, you you can go to thegamecrafter.com uh, slash games if you're searching for games. And we have shops for different ca- categories as well. So like tarot or upgrades to your favorite games or game pieces, that sort of thing. But anyway, you can uh, publish your game to our shop. And how it works is that when a copy gets sold, we will manufacture it, ship it out to the end customer. And you don't have to do a thing. Uh, all you do is collect a royalty, and you set that royalty. Uh, you know, we tell you how much the game costs, and you set the price. So um, you get to choose what your royalty is, and we pay that out via PayPal uh, sometime later. 
And so, um, yeah, it's a really simple thing if you've got a game that you want to sell. And of course, we're not doing the marketing aspect of it. So we're not your publisher. We're just a retailer for you. But yeah, we can handle all that and, and make it problem free for you. Makes it sound really desirable to create a game and get it out there for people to see and try it out. So the game designer still is responsible for doing all the marketing and they just direct people to your website to print, to actually have it printed. So there's no, Hey, I'm going to pay for it and wait six months, like with the crowdfunding. Right. Well, we do, we do actually have a crowdfunding option too, that we could talk about later if you like, but the, uh, but yeah, for the web sales, it's just, uh, yeah, you're like, let's say you belong to a, you're making a game about horses and you belong to a Facebook group about horses or, or, uh, you know, a newsletter, uh, email newsletter about horses, that sort of thing. You will market your game to, you know, the audience that you have access to, whether that be the fandom of a comic book that you're writing or, or whatever it is. And then, you know, people come out and they can purchase it off of our website. That's not to say you won't get sales from our website naturally. You know, we we have lots of shoppers uh, buying games on there, thousands of them a week. But, you know, finding your game among the sea of other games that exist there is challenging. So that's why your own marketing really comes into play to help people find that game. Uh, Now, of course, if going back to that example, if you're making a game about horses, they can go to the search engine and type in horses and, and maybe find your particular game. Uh, but they may not know to search for horses because, you know, they're they're not fans of horses or they're thinking of something else when they come to the website. Anyway, so the point is, it is a regular e-commerce website like Etsy or Amazon or even eBay for that matter. Uh, and we do all the retail sales and just pay you at the end. Now, crowdfunding, we actually have a thing called crowd sales, uh, which work a lot like Kickstarter it's, or any other crowdfunding platform that you're aware of. Uh, and in that, you basically will create a campaign on our website. And again, we will market it to our social media and the front page of our website and that sort of stuff while your sale is running. But again, you should bring your own crowd. That's the nature of crowdfunding. And what happens is you'll set a duration for the sale and you will set uh, what you want the the price to be. And the difference here between Kickstarter and us is, first of all, everybody who backs a copy is going to get a copy regardless. There is no tilt at the end where, you know, you have to hit this many before it'll sell. Uh, everybody that backs will get a copy. The difference is that uh, the more people that back, the cheaper it becomes for everybody. So we charge credit cards at the end of the sale, even though you pledge any time you want during the sale. And so every 10 copies that you sell during your crowd sale, the price goes down by a little bit. And so you could get you know 50% off by the end of the sale if you get enough people um, ba- backing your uh, crowd sale. So anyway, sorry, I went on a little long there, but... <laughs> no, that's just fine. I was very interested in hearing how your crowdfunding option is different than like Kickstarter or GameFound that reduction in price that's very attractive at least especially to me because then i feel like i won at the end you know that thrill of the hunt that people find which happen it makes uh it makes it interesting for the designer as well because a lot of times when you're doing a kickstarter you've designed your game and you have to come up with some crazy 
extra stretch goals, you know, and it might be swag like t-shirts and stuff like that. It might be um, that you come out with a game mat. It might be that you uh, add extra content to the game. But the problem is that that's stressful. So you're either going to break up the game into pieces that you don't want to break up so that you have these stretch goals, or you have to add content that may make the game worse. Um, so with us, there are no stretch goals. It's simply you get those pricing tiers. So you build the best game possible, and then uh, you sell it uh, you know, for a discounted rate. And I think it works out better for everybody uh, that way. Sounds really attractive. And as a purchaser, as a buyer, then I am knowing at the maximum that I'm going to pay going in instead right. of the minimum where, you know, add-ons and everything else that you can't miss yes. out on. Yep, absolutely. Yep, you'll <laughs> so know the maximum really, right at the end. Yep, that's that's really awesome. So it sounds like your company has a lot of different, a couple different ways to get games into the hands of players uh, that can be cost effective and are pretty quick and you can get a new game. Indeed. So, yeah. So how did you get into the hobby of tabletop gaming? I mean, uh, I grew up in a household that played tabletop games, but it was more of your Hasbro style games, you know, Risk, Monopoly, that sort of thing. Um, also a lot of card games, trick-taking games like Euchre and, and uh, Dirty Clubs and things like that. Uh, and so it was natural for me to progress into other games as opportunities arose. So uh, in high school, I ran into somebody, I made a friend that uh, was into role-playing games. And so I got to start playing those. And then in college, I started playing even more role-playing games and board games. And that, and then I decided I wanted to design my own stuff. You know, I'd been playing enough games where I'm like, oh, I could come up with something cool. And so I actually published a, a, an RPG called Dead Earth when I was in uh, college. And then I started designing my own board games and did that for, you know, probably 10 years or so. But the problem was that I hated the crafting aspect of board game design. You know, you're printing out cards on your home printer. And like I, back then I was using an inkjet printer, which, you know, the ink costs the same as unicorn blood. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, having to use the guillotine cutter to, you know, kind of cut out your cards and sleeve them and all that kind of stuff. It was such a pain. So I went looking for somebody uh, that could do that and... I didn't find anybody. So, you know, I was looking for a company that could make these cards for me so I didn't have to do the crafting part of, of board game design. And so I, um, I, I started looking and I found Husks. I found eight different companies who came and tried to do it and went out of business doing it. Uh, okay. And so that was, that was kind of the inspiration for getting into you know, actually starting this. But, but anyway, I, I went a little long-winded there again. I told you... <laughs> <laughs> My whole evolution there. So I am that. happy to sit back and listen because to me, this is really fascinating just how it you've progressed and got into this point. So you found companies that went out of business and said, hey, all these companies went out of business. I think it'd be a good idea for me to try <laughs> doing what they were doing. Um, you know, that's a... <laughs> An interesting way to get motivated. Um, clearly, you've been very successful, and you've been in this business for quite a while. Yeah, so the 
I'll, I'll explain myself a little bit there. So I've been building businesses my whole adult life. I started my first business when I was 18. And, uh, you know, at this point, I'm in the high 20s worth of businesses that I've created. Uh, I don't even know what the number is. Um, but but so when I when I saw that all these businesses went out of business, I looked to figure out why, what caused them to go out of business. And I, I found a very common theme. They all tried to treat print-on-demand like long-run printing. So, for example, they would have a customer format their own uh, stuff for press, you know, try to have them format sheets for, for a printer, which takes a lot of customer service because the customer doesn't know necessarily what a press sheet is or how to create a PDF or any of that kind of stuff, let alone to lay it out correctly so that it will print and cut and all of that kind of stuff. So this whole ingestion phase of getting the files from the customer was killing people because they couldn't charge enough for the print and the you know ingestion thing was taking up a lot of human time. So that's what was putting them out of business. So I decided as a developer, software developer, I decided I could automate that with a little bit of software and that's why I've been successful. It's creating automation. That's a good way to improve on a lot of businesses is automating stuff. So mm -hmm. uh, that sounds like you've hit it. You know, you figured out the magical combination to make this successful. So you did also mention that you have been trying to design some games on your own. Have you published any of your games with Great Game Crafter? Yeah, I've published, I don't know, 10 or so on the Game Crafter. I've made a couple hundred games at this point, but I, I'm really hard on myself. Uh, I don't like most of my games. You know, if, I, if it's not really sure. good, I don't, I don't want to publish it. And also, uh, I don't really find the publishing part of board games to be very fun. I love the, I love the design challenge, but then like all of the refinements that you have to do at the end with you know, making videos and all of that stuff isn't as fun to me. So I do it very infrequently, but I've done a bunch of them. Uh, the most famous one probably uh, that I published to the Game Crafter is called The Captain is Dead. It is a co-op game where uh, basically it's the last 10 minutes of your favorite sci-fi series, you know, Star Trek or something of that nature, where things have gone uh, horribly wrong and the captain dies and then the remaining crew have to work together and f get themselves out of a bad situation. And uh, so I did that on the Game Crafter. I uh, ran a Kickstarter for it and pub and fulfilled the Kickstarter through a Game Crafter. And, you know, between website sales and Kickstarter, I sold about 4,000 copies of it on the website. And then AEG came along and uh, wanted to publish it. And so now it's, you know, been out in retail for a number of years, and it's, I don't know, probably another twenty or 30,000. I have no idea how many copies they've sold, but lots. So Yeah, yeah, that is actually not knowing that it was yours. Mm -hmm. That is one that I've had my eye on off and on for a number of years, and then I saw it on your website, and I was like, wow, I didn't realize you guys did the game. <laughs> the captain is dead, and... So now I'm going to have to definitely take time to check it out even further and maybe decide to finally take the plunge and purchase it. So we'll have to get together and play sometime. That would be awesome. Cause I, I love the, that sci-fi type theme that you have or space theme, like, Oh my gosh. 
So mm -hmm. definitely going to have to do that. And so you've talked a lot about this uh, overview of the process for game creation. Do designers use this as a way to get prototypes for their games? Or is this just supposed to be for like a finished game, your process? Oh, no. Prototypes are a big part of uh, what we do. It's not the largest area of what we do, but it is uh, it is a big section of what we do. So a lot of people will, you know, just get a deck of cards printed or, you know, not like a complete game. They'll get a board or whatever it is that they don't want to make at home. Uh, and sometimes they'll, people will do complete prototypes. Like I hate the crafting process, for example, and there's a lot of people out there that are like me. So they'll none of the prototyping do they do at home. They do it entirely through the game crafter. Uh, but there are a lot of people that do like the crafting process. And so uh, they'll, you know, they'll do some of the stuff at home, but then when there are hard things that to do well at home, uh, like making hexes is a really hard thing to do, like hex tiles or something like that. Yeah. So, so that's the sort of thing that people will come to the game crafter because we can make that, you know, with all of our machinery and stuff way easier than you can with like an exacto knife or something at home. Okay, so that's that's really cool. So that it gives them an easier way, like you said, for those that don't enjoy the crafting part but really want to get this game going. All right, so we've gone over the process for game creation and kind of how a publisher create uh, gets their game published through your site. It's a lot of you assisting them and how with the publishing portion of it while they do the marketing and promoting of their game. And then people get their games when they purchase it. How long does it take? Uh, well, we publish we publish a real-time queue on our website so people can go, if you go to thegamecrafter.com slash status, you can actually see what our queue looks like at any given time. It's all first in, first out, which means the the person that ordered first gets their thing first and and that sort of thing but uh depending on the time of year it'll take a week two three like if we're at christmas or um or during the peak of convention season like right before gen con it could take several weeks to get your game but uh, most of the time we're trying to keep it around a week that it takes uh to get your game but we'll always give you a live estimate uh, right at the time of order and we'll keep updating that estimate as time goes on you know while you're waiting too so that you're getting the most accurate information that we can give you uh while you're waiting kind of a fun way for the buyers to see and follow along in the process a little bit too then right like yeah with other crowdfunding absolutely. you get those status updates with this you get to just go in and check it's like a really slow pizza delivery like Pizza Hut has their tracker and everything. Yeah, I, I wish we could pull off 30 minutes or less. That would be amazing. Uh, so but, you know, the, when you've got several thousand games in the queue, it's just it's just not possible. Although right. we do have, we do actually have an urgent, now that you bring that up, we have an urgent uh, ordering process where you can, at checkout, you kind of are like, I need this right now. Uh, and so you, you can click that uh, at checkout and pay a little extra and uh, you'll get right at the front of the queue then. So basically you'll get the, the game will leave our office or our uh, factory uh, basically a day after you order it. So oh, wow. then, then it's just up to how long it takes to ship it to you based on what shipping you chose. So. Oh, that's cool. So you can pay to cut in line. Got that's so right. That's you learn that in school, you give someone candy, they let you stand in line in front of them. Do you <laughs> ship internationally or is it just domestically? 
Yeah, we ship to uh, not every country in the world, but almost. It's like 189 countries or something like that. So Okay, that's cool. Yeah. So that's yeah. a lot to have to also manage when you're shipping internationally with the different regulations and countries. So. Oh, yeah, it's it's quite challenging. And especially during with COVID and everything, there's a lot of countries that, you know, accept mail and then they stop accepting mail and then they accept mail again. It's yeah. Right. It's and been crazy the last few years. <laughs> well, and uh, in the UK, they just had Royal Mail just went on strike for a few weeks. So, I mean, yeah, you got to deal yep. with that, too. And <laughs> Absolutely. The other thing that we do, uh, you know, since we're talking about shipping and, and that sort of thing, we have this we have this system that we call a BOF or bulk order fulfillment. So you basically upload your spreadsheet to our website of um, you know addresses that you want to ship your copies of your game to, and uh, we'll produce them and then ship them out. And a lot of times that's a, a lot of international orders. So we're you know we're shipping to you know twenty different countries for you know it's one one copy of a game or two copies of a game to you know three hundred addresses you know that sort of thing. And so, uh, but we get to take some of that nightmare out uh, of the hands of the person that wants to ship those things. They don't have to worry about, you know, like you said, the mail strike that's happening in uh, in Great Britain or the war in Ukraine or whatever else happens to be going on at the time that they deal with that. If the package gets lost in the mail because Brazil has a terrible shipping system, which it does, by the way, then we will make a new copy and ship it out and they don't have to worry about the fact that you know something bad happened so that's really nice that is a very nice for peace of mind for these publishers too but that's not something they need to deal with and everything now you're helping out these game designers quite a lot is do you have much interaction with them throughout the process we actually have very little interaction during the publishing process unless they need help. I mean, any, they can email us at any time and we've got a great customer service team who will help them through any issues that they have. Uh, we actually have a service called Concierge where they can pay us to actually make their files and things like that if they don't have the skills. So we have a lot of different ways that we can help people through that process if they need it. but the vast majority of our customers are kind of self-serve. So uh, the primary way that we interact with most of them is actually uh, either at conventions. We go to a lot of them and we sponsor a lot. I think close to 100 different conventions that we either attend or sponsor per year. Plus we uh, have all kinds of like community contests and um, social media uh, social media interaction. You know, like we have a Discord server just like you do. So lots of different things that we do to try to uh, interact with our customers because we don't have to interact with them in the ordering process usually. Sure. Well, that sounds nice. It sounds like, a, like a, a nice way to get to know them and them to also get to know you as a company and not just a here, give me this type of right, relationship. Yeah. So very yeah. fun. That sounds great. I guess my last question for you is pretty simple. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners or anything else that I didn't ask you about that you really want to talk about? <laughs> Man, the, I mean, leave it wide open people. for you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I don't if they've got people, this, they're not going to get bored. <laughs> <laughs> there are literally hundreds of things that we could talk about. If you're interested in game design, you probably already know who we are. If you, if you don't, I hope you've gotten a nice little introduction to what we can do. But but really, 
get involved in the community because you will learn just how wide the scope of the game crafter gets when you when you get in there with all of the different things that we can manufacture with all the different uh, services that we provide and just all the community events that we that we run and and involve uh, get involved with so i'll give you a couple just to spark your interest that you can go uh, look at on your own we made a, a website called component studio where you can design your own uh, components your cards your tiles that sort of thing all through a drag and drop interface and you do it in a magic way in that uh, you basically will design a single card or a single tile that sort of thing and then upload a spreadsheet to the site and it will automatically design the next hundred for you so that's one cool thing. We have a service called Laboratory where you can literally design anything. We've designed literally six foot tall miniatures for, you know, <laughs> so people could do oversized board games uh, at their convention. So the, uh, we, we run all kinds of like social events. Uh, we'll buy you some food if you come to a social events with us at Gen Con, for example. There, all kinds of things. We'll sponsor you. We'll pay you to go to conventions and and market yourself and us at the same time. So like uh, that's called our designer table sponsorship. There's just so many things that we do and uh, we'd love to get to know you better and have you involved in our community. All right, well, that sounds wonderful. And I am so excited to hopefully talk to you again, JT, about more things and dive into even more of what the Game Crafter can do in a like a future episode so you know give people a break right now i guess (laughs) yes we would love to have you on here again and i definitely want to check out the captain is dead too so awesome maybe we can take a deep dive into some subject together so yes yes definitely let me know what you would like to talk about or listeners send in any suggestions that you would like us to discuss there's a topic you would like us to do a deep dive on too so yeah that's better because then we know at least one person out there wants to hear about it (laughs) (laughs) yes so if you want to hear about something message us all right and with that i'm just going to say thank you jt very much for joining us today and i loved hearing about the game crafter and we will talk again soon thank you thanks for having me And we're back, and we have been joined by Keith from Thunderworks Games. How's it going? Good, good to be here. Man, it's excellent to have a, another repeat publisher and designer on the show. So, Keith, we're here to talk about Goblin Vault. So, why don't you give us a rundown? What is this game you've got coming out? How do we get it? And why is it awesome? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Goblin Vaults is a one to five player, like uh, 30 to 45 minute. Uh, card game. It comes in a smaller size box, similar to Cartographers, and it's $25 product. It is, at its core, it's, it's a kind of a traditional card game in terms of you've got suited cards with uh, numbers. There's six different suits, uh, and it goes from one to ten. You are building a, a vault in front of you, so you're building a tableau of four columns and up to three cards in each one. Each turn, you are using the cards in your hand to bid for the cards that are on offer each turn. And then you're, you're trying to figure out what the best position that card should be in. You're looking for certain cards that are associated with your faction, which are going to get you points. And then you're also, there's three uh, scoring cards in play that, that are going to score different every time. So there's 
um, one card for each suit, and they're all double-sided, and you're going to play with three at a time. So, yeah, so you're basically bidding for cards. You're trying to maneuver uh, and, and uh, get, get the right cards for your vault and, and deny other people the cards that they need. Yeah, and it's 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 a real kind of thinky. I think it's a it's more thinky than people expect by the, like the size of the box, and it's a it's a good time with lots of replayability. Comes out. We're gonna start pre-sales for it on the Thunderworks website February first. So as soon as that order comes in, uh, we're gonna ship you the game, and it's gonna come with a with a free promo card, and then the game will hit retail on uh, all your. Uh, at your local game store and all the online game stores uh, February 28th, so uh, about a month later. Nice. Can you uh, tell us what the inspiration for this particular game is? Where did it come from? Yeah, so this one's uh, interesting. This So the, the name Goblin Vaults is actually mentioned in one of the adventures in Role Player Adventures. So it's, it's in the Role Player universe. And uh, in Roleplayer Adventures, you're you know walking around Culbic Prison, and you run into different characters, and they're playing games. And one of them happens to be Goblin Vaults. And the idea was like, hey, uh, it would be cool to make the game from the game. You know, there's there's some other people that have done that where there's, you know, there's a role playing game that has a, 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 a playable game in it, and then some they release the game separately. So that was kind of the inspiration. It created a framework for us to move forward on, but it also created a bunch of restrictions of like, you know, uh, if it's a game that people, you know, goblins could potentially play in a, in a fantasy prison, <laughs> you know, I don't think we can add lots of like boards and lots like a ton of pieces. So we needed to keep the scope, you know, small. And so then also it was like, well, what, you're going to have currency in this game. So you're going to be buying things or selling things or getting points. And what can we use to represent that? You know, there's, uh, I assume that if, <laughs> I've never been a, a goblin in a fantasy prison before, but if I was, I don't think there'd be like, you know, piles of gold laying around. So one of the things that we did was that uh, we use gears for the currency, which uh, thematically represent like the, the construct guards. So these robots are the guards in the prison. And these are like, you know, kind of pieces of the guards that have been stolen or kind of found uh, or extra pieces that they use uh, to kind of use for trade uh, in Colbeck. So it's, it's, that's kind of the inspiration for that piece. So Goblin Vaults, we just got a opportunity to play it as well. And I can say I absolutely enjoyed it. Uh, it's uh, a very fun game. And you're absolutely right. It is more game in the box than I was expecting. But that doesn't surprise me from you since I've like every game that I've played that you've designed or had a hand in, it's been uh, really remarkable how much game there is in. And we talked about, I think, right after the play or during the play, a little bit about had kind of that role player feel at the end with not having quite enough resources. Is that something that you're you're finding is kind of common as a mechanic or the, kind of theme into the way you're? You're focused or designing designing games today, or I mean, I think that's um, just something I like, you know. So at the beginning of the game, you have a hand of of ten cards, uh, and your your options feel very wide open. Like think of all the, all the things you can do, and then it's a matter of planning and a, and a matter of like playing the right things at the right time. And as the game starts to come to a close, your options get narrower and narrower. So it kind of has this like kind of squeezing effect uh, at the end of the game, and that's true in role player and also in this game. Um, and I like, you know, there's complexity to this game, um, in terms of there's, I, th I guess I think about layers. It's like, okay, you you got this to think about and that's going to, you're going to worry about that for your score, but then you've got this other, other element you got to think about. And there's this other element you have to think about. And that's true in this game where you're thinking about where you want to place the card. 
uh, you're, you're thinking about like what faction icons you want. You're thinking about the three scoring cards and which cards that are on offer are going to be help you meet those goals the best. So there's kind of multiple things you're thinking about. And I think there's a nice parallel there too. When you're selecting a die and role player, you're thinking about, okay, what color do I want? What number do I want? What position in purchase order do I want to be in? And where am I going to place it? Because what action do I want to take? So it's like in that decision, there's multiple layers. And that's also true in Goblin Vaults where you're deciding which one of these three cards you want to bid on or you want to try to underbid uh, somebody to get the card that's in your hand into your vault. So there's multiple layers of things you're thinking about. So it makes the decisions kind of more complex than, than what I would, you know, a light game or something like that. I'm curious about the mechanics too. Is there anything from the theme of it where it's goblins playing a card game in a prison that came into the mechanics or that inspired the mechanics? I mean, you know, there's a warden card right. that, that factors in, but is there other stuff in terms of how the game is? Um, I mean, the warden card is, is basically the, the card that determines the trump suit. Uh, it also uh, opens up an opportunity to take some special actions. If you match an icon that's on the warden card, you can uh, move a card in your vault or you can kind of uh, dump a card and grab a new one. So there's there's definitely the 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 warden warden mercy in Culbic Prison is kind of a a, a main character in role player mm-hmm. uh, in, in mainly in lockup, and then that character is actually appears in the lockup expansion as well and is also in role player adventures. So you know I think about Culbic Prison and I think about like okay who are who are some you know who who are the people in this place that people might uh, you know have have some experience with and we can continue to kind of highlight. I think having you know suits with numbers, uh, numbered suits as a traditional card game, that's not something that um, I've ever done in any of my games before, and that's kind of a traditional card game you know kind of uh, thing. And I feel like those are those are the kind of games that that someone who doesn't have access to a local game store buying the latest uh, designer game might uh, create a game with. So um, so that that was where some of the inspiration was from, but. I would say at the end of the day, it's like mechanics first, like mm. uh, gameplay is, you know, having a nice theme, having something that, that can help you learn the rules of the game because of the, the theme makes sense um, and have like going into the world a little bit. I think that's a great thing. But, you know, if, if the gameplay is not there, if you're not having fun, if it's not, you know, mentally engaging, then then I don't think it, it matters a whole lot. So uh, definitely gameplay first. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the art on the game turned out really well. We made an effort to try to make the cards look weathered, make them like not look like they, you know, came out of a, a standard card pack. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. They're supposed to look kind of beat up, like um, that they've been heavily used and stuff uh, as part of kind of the aesthetic of the game. So one of the things that we noticed, and I think you mentioned it when we talked to you last time, was that all of your games have a solo player mechanic. And this one is no exception. Why is solo play so important, and how do you make solo play work in a game where you're bidding for cards? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, most bidding games don't have, you know, a lot. most bidding games don't play down to two players or even one player. So that was definitely a challenge. Thunder, like, the solo, the dedication to the solo player started early on. My first game on Kickstarter was a game called Bullfrogs, which we talked about earlier. And, you know, I, there was a demand uh, in the comments for a solo game, or I came up, I don't remember exactly, but I I definitely came up with an idea and I added it as an add-on with the idea of like, well, maybe people like solo games. Um, And it was overwhelmingly popular. Like, I think a solid, at least... 
at least 30% of the people that pledged to the game also added like an $8 solo mode, huh. which was kind of eye-opening. So I think solo board gaming has exploded since then. And I, I felt like I was kind of on the beginning of the cur- the the wave on that a little bit. And when Roleplayer was on Kickstarter, kind of the second big game that I did on Kickstarter, there was like a lot of people asking for a solo mode. So I designed one. So, um, And then it became a thing. Um, I designed a lot of solo modes for uh, Eduardo Baraf over at Pencil First Games on uh, his uh, herbaceous line. And it's just been kind of like, well, we've supported the solo players. The biggest guild on Board Game Geek is the Solo Players Guild. So there's, there's a lot of people that like to play solo modes. So it seems like a missed opportunity if you don't have a solo mode in your game. And uh, this one in particular was a challenge, but it's uh, it, it has a... You know, creating something that's easy to administer, that, you know, you don't spend the entire game, like, messing with the AI the whole time, but that also emulates, you know, a multiplayer game is kind of the goal. And we we did that with kind of adding a dummy player that spits out kind of a random bid, and then the player bids, and then the dummy player puts out a second bid. So you're still trying to make sure you get the card that you want because the AI could could still outbid you if they want. And then... uh, and we, I really enjoyed using that system in the solo mode. So then, I actually added it, added it to a variant of that to the two-player game, where there's a, a third AI character that's that's also bidding, kind of gumming up the works and um, making sure that not everybody gets every single card that they want. So, at this point, like every single Thunderworks title has a solo mode, and I don't see that changing. No, that's awesome. I, I don't think Justin or I are solo players at all. I- Maybe I go. I shouldn't talk to you. I'm definitely not a solo player kind of guy. <laughs> Once in a while, I'll try. I find I'll, it intriguing yeah. that a game like this can have a, a good solo player component to it, and it sounds like you put a lot of thought into that. And I think even players that, like you said, that don't play a lot of solo, like I think when they see a game that plays down to solo, they they see it as an added value to their game. That if I ever decided to play solo mode, it was available. And then some people will play solo modes for games just to learn the core mechanics before they get together with their buddies and play a multiplayer game. So, um, yes, I, I, don't, I honestly don't see why all games have, don't have solo modes, you know? I mean, it definitely takes some design work, and usually there's a component or two that's added to make the solo mode work, but I think you're going to see more and more. That's going to be more and more common as we move forward. I think there's some great insights there. I did not realize that the on Borking Geek, the biggest guild is the Solar Plague. Solar Plague. Yeah, that's, so that's interesting. Yeah, it is really actually. <laughs> I mean, I personally, it's not something I look into, but that's definitely something we'll need to pay attention to more. It's it's funny though, like when you said, you know, even as a non-solo gamer, I, I do I've tried a little once in a while solo gaming, but I do actually think about it when I'm looking at a game to buy that, hey, this also does solo. I could do that if I want. It totally factors into to right. how I think about it. You're absolutely right about that. And uh, another thing that, that we do uh, here at Thunderwars Games, uh, <laughs> another thing we do is um, there's some community-supported or some community-run kind of monthly challenges on Board Game Geek. So if you play solo games and uh, you're interested in playing some Thunderworks titles, every month we put up kind of a role player challenge where we say, hey, this is, everybody's going to play this this character board. They're going to use this class, et cetera, et cetera. And then that everybody posts the results. And then at the end of the month, then uh, Thunderworks, a.k.a. me, uh, I send uh, a prize out to the, 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 the not the randomly get drawn, uh, their name gets drawn if they participate. And I send them, you know, uh, bon- uh, promo items or whatever for the game. 
Uh, and we also do one for cartographers every month as well. So um, if, you're if you're interested in getting some free stuff uh, from Thunderworks and want to play some of uh, our games more often, I would try to find those. And uh, you, can, uh, you can partake in the, the challenges every month and be up to, to win some cool stuff. That's really cool. I that, that that's exciting to be like. Uh, it reminds me of like those daily or weekly challenges you'll see on video games and mm -hmm. stuff. Like, it seems uh, right. I, that's a really cool idea. <laughs> uh, it's a great way to stay involved and engage with the community yeah. and right. the people that are playing. So, what else? I mean, have we talked about everything we need to talk about with Goblin Vaults? Is there anything else we need the people to know about this? I mean, they. I absolutely. I think if you're having an opportunity to look for a game like this this is this was a lot of fun i actually liked it. it really from a form factor the box is a beautiful box but it's bigger than what it you know the game needs to be so you can easily slip this into say a plastic baggie take it with you anywhere you want to go you want to go to the pub you're going on vacation yeah you want to play it with um wherever this game will work and uh, that is a big, I think that's been a big plus for uh, Suzanne and I in particular. We've really been finding games that have a lot of complexity and are able to be traveled with. It's very important to us uh, as we uh, look at traveling and doing those kind of things more often. Um, I'm very excited to uh, get a copy of this and, and be able to do that and bring it. Uh, but anything else we wanted to touch on or cover with, with Goblin Vaults? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, obviously, um, we're going to start, uh, people can start getting their copies in the next week or so. And, uh, you know, a lot of the early feedback have been really positive, excited to see it in people's hands. And um, it's this this title, you know, because, you know, this, f for its size, it, it took the longest to, to get across the finish line. So it was it's, it's fun <laughs> to finally, you know, see it coming out after kind of, going through uh, a lot of redesign and, and uh, additional work on it. So, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the first of three releases for Thunderworks this year, and uh, we're excited to, to see it come out. So I say to transition there, what <laughs> else can we get excited for? What's coming in the future for Thunderworks? Yeah, so uh, right now we're kind of doing – we're trying to do about three games a year. So Th Goblin Vaults is our first. And then we ran two Kickstarters at the end of the year last year, one for Dawn of Ulos and the second for the new expansion for role-player adventures called Gold Packs a Secret. Uh, Dawn of Ulos is uh, in manufacturing and on its, it's going to be on its way very soon. So people, backers, should start getting that in July and then it'll be a, a, a Gen Con release at the beginning of August uh, to retail. And then, um, and then after that, obviously, we'll have the the role player adventures expansion coming out in in November. That also includes a reprint of the base game and a reprint of the first expansion. Uh, that is a, a big project, and there's lots of there's lots of uh, <laughs> there's a lot of trees getting cut down to make that game. But uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of paper in that game, and, and it's heavy, and uh, it's hard to transport around the globe. So that's yeah. that one's complicated, um, and that one's going to be going into print very very soon. And then. Um, we have a couple crowdfunding campaigns coming. So um, we currently are targeting April for a game called Metro Runner, which I may have mentioned in the past, which is a, you know, it's a 90 minute uh, one to five player. It's kind of a, I would say it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's got a hacking element to it. So it has this <laughs> central puzzle in which you're uh, manipulating uh, these tiles to flip them and slide them around similar to like, it has a little bit of a forbidden desert element to it where the, the tiles are getting slid around and getting flipped over and stuff. 
Um, and then you're moving your character around the um, around the metro in the city, uh, doing jobs for different corporations. You're trying to increase your your runner's notoriety. You're trying to finish jobs for different corporations to uh, kind of um, level up your character to give them more powers and and uh, make them more efficient doing jobs and doing hacks and stuff. So sounds like that might be kind of a cyberpunk vibe. It's 100 percent a cyberpunk yeah, vibe. Yeah, so. nice. <laughs> And the the artwork on it, I think, is pretty amazing. But anyway, (laughs) I'm a little biased. Uh, So my uh, Metro Runner is coming to to crowdfunding uh, Kickstarter likely in April. Um, And then we have another uh, world, uh, role-player world game coming from the designer of cartographers. Uh, His name is Jordi uh, Adan. And uh, there's a title called Stone Spine Architects, which is a drafting dungeon-building game. Interesting. Um, So... It's it's like, uh, yeah, it's it's it has a little bit of like you know sushi go where you you know you, you play a card pass a card kind of mm-hmm, thing, mm-hmm. but it definitely has um, layers of complexity similar to Goblin Vaults that you know something like sushi go kind of doesn't have. Sushi go is a much lighter game, but that core mechanic is is similar, and I think that's all we're talking about right now. You know, <laughs> so you know we've got we've got all our plans in place for the next two three years. And right now we're we're focusing on and those the three that are coming to 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 market Goblin Vaults, Don of Ulos, and Gulpax the Secret, and then two crowdfunding campaigns for Metro Runner and Stone Spine Architects. Well, you, I'll say I backed all of them last year, <laughs> and I will back all of them again this year because I absolutely like. There's nothing wrong with any of these games ever. <laughs> top notch qu- components, top notch quality, and the games are absolutely a blast to play. So. I, uh, I strongly recommend that you pay attention to Thunderworks games here in the future to make sure that that you're aware of when all of these things hit crowdfunding. And of course, uh, we here at Wisco Dice will let you know as well because we're huge fans. Much appreciated. Yeah. And then for uh, Goblin Vaults, just to touch back, you'll be able to get Goblin Vaults in retail when? So Go- Goblin Vaults is a straight to retail title. You know, we try to do uh, two to three. We we're doing like eh, two Kickstarters a year, maybe maybe three sometimes. But um, you know the the thing about uh, Kickstarter and crowdfunding is that they don't they don't always um, they don't let you kind of do as many as you want, right? They kind of restrict you to some degree of how many you can have simultaneously out mm-hmm. outstanding. You know th- that's for a good reason. You know there's a there are some bad players, uh, some bad actors on on uh, Kickstarter that have you know made made life like not not as good for the real kind of honest and up and up guys. So, and this title is, it's a small enough form factor, right? It's the size of cartographers. And uh, so I said, well, let's just go to retail on this one. And then we can kind of save our Kickstarter slots for the bigger games like Dawn of Ulos and, and the role player adventures pieces. So traditionally, I would say most of the titles that Thunderworks publishes are, in, are on Kickstarter. Uh, but we have had some straight to retail. Goblin Vaults is the latest. Um, Cape May and Tenpenny Parks and the original cartographers actually was not on Kickstarter uh, we ended up coming back to Kickstarter with the Heroes expansion uh, for the first time on that product so um, you know there's a lot of differences in kind of the the style of how you uh, release a game uh, re- on retail via retail versus Kickstarter um, and as from a, like a working you know I would rather honestly release games via uh, retail um, Mainly because the, there's there's two the big advantage to that is that you can put all your marketing dollars all your uh, sending out all the dem the final copies that can all happen at release so like the the moments in which people are most excited about the game is like when it's available for them to go to the store and buy 
versus running a Kickstarter campaign. Mm-hmm. We spent a lot of effort and a lot of money marketing the campaign. And then there's a lot of excitement when people are pledging their money, and that's cool. And then, you know, six to nine months later, six to nine months later when the game comes out, you know, you're kind of moved on to the next thing, and you're investing in new things. It basically, then when it comes out to retail, it doesn't particularly do as well, usually. And maybe, yeah. maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But that's, that's the thought on it, um, is that basically a Kickstarter project, if you want to, you have to market it twice. You have to market it during the Kickstarter, and you have to market it when, it, when it's released. Yeah, so that's, that's the deal with Calvin Vaults, straight to retail. You know, we didn't talk about, about it a lot beforehand, and then I was like, hey, we've got this new thing. It's about to come out. Let, you know, check this out, guys, um, which is kind of the, the technique that we've been using on this, this title. Got, we're very excited to, to be able to get our hands on a copy of Goblin Vaults uh, and make sure that you get, if you're out there and you're listening to this, that you uh, get your pre-order because it sounds like that promo card is going to be awesome as well. And you're definitely going to want your copy to have it. Uh, and so, uh, of course, Keith will appreciate your pre-order as well. So <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We'll have links in the show notes for where you can uh, find out more information about Goblin Goblin Vaults. And like I said, stay tuned to Wisco Dice and Thunderworks Games for more information about all these releases. Keith, we so much appreciate the time. But before we wrap this up, did you have anything else that you wanted to let the audience know? Nothing off the top of my head. Um, you know, just just uh, stay tuned here at Wisco Dice and find out the latest about Thunderworks Games. All right. So thanks, everybody, for taking the time. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you leave a review of this show wherever your favorite place is to find podcasts. Oh, and by the way, give us a like on our Facebook page. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Pinterest while you're at it. If you haven't looked recently, make sure you catch up on the blog at wiscodice.com. Hey, Brian, what's that site? Oh, darn. I forget. Uh, Justin, what's our website again? Wiscodice.com. That's right, it's whiskodice.com. And until next time, everyone, peace out.